Hello, my friends, and welcome to a special edition of the New World Kirtan podcast. It's Saturday, March 23rd, 2013. I'm Kitsy Stern, and I host and produce this podcast as an act of service to the Kirtan community. It's also an audio journal of my spiritual journey through the practice of singing and playing Kirtan. Last month at the Denver Chant Fest, Dr. Manoj Trollam and his wife Jyoti held a room full of us at rapt attention with their workshop on the symbolism of Hindu and Buddhist deities and their relevance in our lives today. That was fascinating. I apologize for the sound. I hadn't intended to record it, but when I got in there, it was so good, I just did it on the fly. A Denver Kirtan group called the Push Palms uh, were playing in the next room. And when I was playing the file back, I noticed that during their sound check, they were playing a song to Ganapati, as Jyoti was talking about Ganesha. (laughs) Ganapati is another name for Ganesha, so that was a nice synchronicity. The push palms sounded great, and you'll be happy to know they're about to release their first CD, so we'll be hearing more from them. Ah, well, this week coming up is spring break, and I'm anticipating some nice family time as my son comes home from college. So I'll be back next week because I have got such a great fresh track set. I have enough music to probably do two fresh track sets. And I just got the new Diva Permal and Mitten CD. So stay tuned. There's lots coming. Enjoy Minoj. Namaste, my friends. He has a broad forehead that represents both intelligence and a strong intellect. So now what is the difference between intelligence and intellect? Intelligence is like being able to collect a lot of information and remembering it. Is that enough? We can just look at a book, a yoga book, and know exactly what all the poses are, memorize all the names, Varasana or Anumanasana. Anjali Mudra, you memorize all of that, would we benefit from it? Yeah. We need to have a strong intellect so we may practice every day. Because that is the right thing to do. So the intellect, what it does is it has a reasoning capacity. It can reason with things and say which one is right, which one is wrong, and be able to choose the right one all the time. That is a strong intellect. So what do we need? We need both. We need to be able to collect the information, and we need to be able to follow it. Lead a life according to it. So Ganesha does that. And when we pray to Ganesha, we give us that ability as well. That's what the law of the broad forehead represents. And he has small eyes. A big face, he has big tiny eyes. That represents the ability to focus. Take a task, if you focus on it, that's when we get to do a really good job. So, Ganesha helps us do that, and he's very good at that. And then, he has a broken task, and he usually holds it in his hand. What that is, is there's a story. So, there's this great saint called Vyasa Chatya. He played a really big role in giving us the Vedas, preserving the Vedas, and he 
wrote the Bhagavad Gita. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with that. So Vyasacharya also wrote the longest poetry called Mahabharata. There's 100,000 verses in it. It's the longest one of its kind today. Unique, very unique. And he wrote it. So, but he wanted, he was, he composed it, and he wanted somebody to write it down. So he uh, sent an email to everybody, all, <laughs> <laughs> all the eligible candidates who could write it down. And Ganesha shows up. He broke his tusk off and he was ready. He, he wanted to use it as a pen. Because they wrote on palm leaves those days. So Vyasacharya looked at everybody, and there was one condition for somebody to write Mahabharata down, they have to first comprehend it. And Ganesha shows up with his big ears, represents, he not only hears what you say, he comprehends, assimilates all of the above. So he's the most apt candidate to write it down. So he was appointed, everybody else was sent away. So he took his task and wrote down the Mahabharata 100,000 verses. We still have it with us today. Ganesha has an axe on his right hand and a noose on his left hand. Until then, it is real. Okay. 
So when do we negate this world? Because this is not permanent either. Mm -hmm. right? What is innate nature is something that never changes. But then, this I that we call ourselves, the waking I, is only associated with this waking world. <coughs> the moment we fall asleep, this waking world is gone. The waking time is gone. Can you, have you ever written down, noted down the time that you fell asleep? <laughs> Try tonight. <laughs> Try to write down the time that you fell asleep. You can't, yes? You can know the time you went to bed. <laughs> Why? Because this time is gone. It's non-existent. So, how can this be real? We think it is real. Feels like it is real. But it is just another dream. Because it is not our innate nature. This I that we claim when we are awake is not our real nature. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yes. So same as the dream. There's an I in the dream too. Think about it. Is this the same I? <laughs> Oh, it's a different eye because we're not using any of our sense organs. Our eyes are closed. <clears throat> Ears cannot hear. Music was playing when you fell asleep. You won't hear it anymore. Why? Because your mind is resolved. The mind has to be behind every sense organ for you to be able to have this experience of this world. So this world is just as real as a dream. Nothing more. Knowing that is we wake up. Knowing what is real from what is unreal. There is something real in us though. There has to be something real. Otherwise, we wouldn't know of all these worlds coming and going. It's like being at a train station and watching all the trains coming and going. Mm. If we come, came in a train and left in that train, we wouldn't know of all the other trains coming and going. But we are aware of every state that we go through. We're aware of the waking state, and it goes away. We're aware of the dream state, and we watch it go away. We're asleep. We're not, we are not aware of anything, and we wake up and say, I had a good night's the only way you would know that all these three states are happening to you is if you were to stand here and watch all of this go by. So there is something in you that is not sleeping. There is something in you that is continuous throughout these three states. And that is the real you. That is the real you. We never objectify this real I because is the ultimate subject. It can never be objectified. Okay. So knowing this, this knowledge is called Vibeka. And that's what Ganesha will lead us to with his news. Okay. And he will chop off by that graph. Means everything that is unreal. So everything that we see is as though real. Feels like this we are, but it isn't. So we won't place as much importance to it. So anything happening to us, however weird or 
bad the experience may be, we have to handle it better because we know it's just like a dream, nothing more than that. But then do we stop reacting in situations? No, we continue to react in situations. That's what we're supposed to do because that earns us karma, good karma. So that we may have good experiences rather than bad. And it is always better to have good experiences. So that's what Ganesha helps us with his acts and his news. And then notice he has a big belly. And the big belly is a representation of how he digests opposites. This world is full of opposites. Dwandwa is called in Sanskrit. Raga is likes, 
Dwesha is dislikes. So anytime we have an experience, we make a list. We have two lists with us. All of us have this. If you think about it, and even this truth, we have all these likes and dislikes list. <coughs> Any experience we have, we put it in a likes list or our dislikes list. Anybody we meet, we put it in a likes list or dislikes list. And what we want to do, ideally, is repeat everything on our likes list as many times as possible. <laughs> and avoid everything on our dislikes list. No matter what, we bend backwards trying to avoid it. And when we try to do this day in and day out, it weighs us down. Our mind becomes so stressful because we're trying to have this perfect setup. Ultimately, all we're looking for is happiness. We're looking the, in all, we're all looking in different directions, but ultimately we're all looking for happiness. So, Yaga and Dwesha <clears throat> Ganesha helps us get rid of those lists and be happy in any situation. So, you, you, we have these great saints in India. Their last names are always Ananda. So, there will be Paramarthananda or Swami Dayananda or Swami Paramaham, Paramahamsa Yogananda. Always ends with Ananda. Ananda means? Yes. 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 Joy. So it's not an experiential pleasure. There's an experiential pleasure. There's a beginning, middle, and then. But when you have seen your true nature, you become that. So how do you introduce yourself? I'm happy. That's how you introduce yourself. Become this happiness. And it is never ending, everlasting. It's not the character from Cinderella though. <laughs> happy as a noun, not as an experiential adjective. I'm happy today. There's no condition. Absolutely no condition. That's what we're that's what our aim is, to get to that place where we're always happy. In Ganesha. So eventually we become Lord Ganesha. And all the sense of against and all this Zagat Vesha that under our control. Any questions on Ganesha? Yes. So this raga is a different from the musical raga. Oh yes. Oh yes. Musical raga is a bunch of notes specific to a certain Scale. There are 72 different scales in uh, South Indian classical music. All has seven notes going up and coming down. And then there are also Janya Ragas, means born out of these parent ragas. And they may take some of the notes. So that's, that raga is different from it. We do like ragas though. <laughs> In, in South India, are they related to, like in North India, two times of the day and the different deities? And yeah, in, actually, yeah. In Ganesha, is supposed to be single in uh, the South India. They believe that Ganesha never married. But in North India, they think Ganesha has two wives, Siddhi and Vidhi. <laughs> so he has Lakshmi, that goddess of uh, wealth and abundance, and goddess of knowledge, both by his side. So that's that's again something that Ganesha can give us. 
So these symbolisms, if you, yeah, another question? I was just going to, how did Ganesha come into being? Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> without going to an architectural Yes. 
In other words, you make the, the idea of Hindu deities more palatable to monotheists or, or Christians. Or,
but the word God, because in English you have God and deity in translation. What's the words in Sanskrit? In Sanskrit, Devam. God, the one God is Devam? Oh, one God is Brahman. Yeah. One God is Brahman. Again, oops, uh, yes, Sanskrit. <laughs> <laughs> change in their life, be it a new relationship, a new job, a new spiritual path, anything radically new. So this circle, the flames is like flames of creation. Essentially we are creating our own universe. And on one hand, Shiva holds a flame, the Agni, which represents the fire in your belly. You need to transform. You are getting out of your comfort zone. And that says here, on either side. So, if you have like long breaths and you dance ecstatically, you become the dancing Shiva. <laughs> on the other hand, he holds a drum, the Damaru, which is the pulse beat of transformation. Everything in the world is vibratory. Even the inner table is vibrating. And there was a 10th century Sanskrit text, Pandakarika, Sanskrit text which talked about the universe as vibrations. And that's something that physicists only found last century. This was known way back. Okay. Now, when you embark on change in your life, the old thoughts and old relationships, they drag you down. And that's represented by the being of forgetfulness at the bottom of Shiva's foot. That's called Apasmara. Smara, in Sanskrit means to remember. Apasmara means you literally forget, you become paralyzed, you become unable to change, you become like a deer caught in the headlights. Mm -hmm. So what does Shiva do? He steps on his butt, <laughs> he crushes it, and he teaches us life is about creation and destruction simultaneously. But then here's what happens in conscious change, is we worry about the results. We worry about the results because it comes from our ego. We don't live in the present. The ego dwells in the past, thinks of all the past mistakes we've made, or we project in the future. 
And we say, what if the results of our transformation don't work out? For that, Lord Shiva does two things. Number one, he raises his left foot like that. And number two, with his left arm, he makes a grand sweeping gesture to his foot. What that means he's saying is, let it go, surrender. It's called the Sharanagati Mudra. Now the word surrender, you talk to a guy on the street, he would say it's like giving up or losing. But from a yogi's perspective, surrender is like a drop of water merging with the ocean. You gain the infinite. You realize you are the infinite. When you truly surrender, you think that you're going towards the ocean, you are the ocean. When you truly surrender, with the other hand he does this. That's called Abhaya Mudra. Abhaya means fear. Abhaya means he removes all fears and uncertainties within you and helps you to journey to the new reality. Yeah? But the effort has to come. You know, the spiritual path is always a combination of effort and grace. The effort is he's showing the way. And he's actually crossing his heart when he does it. See that? It's a very beautifully designed murti. Crossing of the heart represents the dark night of the soul. That's a Christian analogy. Mm-hmm. It's the deepest, darkest moments in our life when we're really, really feeling down. It's an occasion to surrender. Okay? When you truly surrender, you get the grace. Grace is always shining. It's like I give an example. We travel all over the country. We teach workshops on the deities. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we take them on the train. Um, and uh, they're all dressed by Homeland Security. Yeah. <laughs> and you're allowed only like 50 pounds, you know, on Southwest, you go to two bags. But it's really heavy when you carry these. So what they don't measure is the handbag. My carry-on. And I put like uh, many more things. It weighs about 70, 80 pounds now. Now I'm schlepping it on the plane. Schlepping is a Sanskrit word. And now I have to lift it up. And the air hostess is watching me like suspiciously, you know. So I'm exerting tremendous spiritual effort. But I have to act as if it's light. So I'm like smiling. But listen, when you, most people, they live in this wheel of samsara. It's the edge of the circle, you know, creation, destruction, creation, destruction. We're like buffeted by waves of change. But when you take a spinning wheel, something is unchanging in a spinning circle or a spinning wheel. That's the one thing that doesn't change. And where is the center? Right where the heart is. The heart is a seat of pure consciousness. That's where the I am resides in us. When you say I am 10 or I am 40, we know that entity Jyoti was referring to, something changeless. So Shiva says life is a dance. You engage, create, destroy. But you know who you are. You are that pure witnessing consciousness. That's never born, never died. That's an entity within you. So when you chant the mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, the meaning of Shiva also means goodness of the divine everywhere. This philosophy teaches us God is everywhere. It's like the Upanishads give the metaphor of a spider spinning its web from itself. God and the creation are the same. 
In other words, it doesn't tell you God has appeared at all white dude in the heaven. Sometimes an anger management problem, right? It <laughs> is everywhere. So that's the first meaning of surrendering yourself to Shiva. The highest meaning is Nama, not me. I am Shiva. Finally, there's no difference between you and Shiva. It's a duet of one. Now let's say Shiva is your archetype, or Ganesh. I'll tell you an easy way to work with it, and there are four ways, but I'll tell you one. You create an altar, and you meditate a few minutes in front of Shiva. And when you meditate, you know, you focus on the gap, or the space between your thoughts. Because the space between your thoughts is pure consciousness. In other words, your thoughts are overlaid on consciousness. So when you meditate and thoughts receive in your mind, your mind is suffused with pure consciousness. At that moment, you open your eyes to shimmer. Your mind is like a vacuum. It sucks in all the energy he represents. The creation, destruction, letting go, fearlessness, living from the heart. And you start to awaken the archetype of Shiva within you. A simple but powerful technique. And I've seen it transform so many people over the years. We've been doing this 11 years. The person who taught me this was Dr. Deepak Chopra. He, I used to teach at Deepak's retreats in San Diego 10 years ago. I used to, I, we, we live in San Diego. And uh, Deepak shared with me the books he writes, the talks he gives. He's been meditating in front of his archetypes, Krishna and Ganesh, for 30 years. So he was an endocrinologist and he transformed by this technique of channelizing his highest energies. Me, myself, I'm, a, I'm actually a scientist by training. I have a doctorate in chemical physics from Cornell, and I've left all and I'm doing this and studying the Mojis. They take me from here to the here. They show me life is about here. It's a connection, okay? So I try to find people the Ishta Devatas. Now I can narrate with you lots of examples how they have transformed people. I remember I was at a yoga journal conference in Wisconsin and a guy comes up to me and he says he wants to buy a Ganesh Murti for his wife who finished a yoga teacher training. So I explained to him all the symbols of Ganesh and how to practice. And he said, all this is fine, but I don't believe you. I'm an atheist. <laughs> and I didn't argue that atheism itself is a belief, right? It's a belief of no belief. <laughs> and he was a retired school teacher. And but you know he wanted to honor his wife, so he actually bought a big Murti of Ganesh, it was a green one. And Baba Deva, Dr. David Foley is the same one. He calls it a militant Ganesh. How many Ganesh is really poly? This one is like standing like a militant deity. And where uh, the So he uh, he bought it from me and you know he went out carrying it's a big heavy and in five minutes he came running back. He said he and his wife won a drawing for the Yoga Jal cruise to the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> and that was worth like several thousand dollars. And his wife never has won anything like this before. And he was totally thrilled. And the whole day he kept holding the hand. <laughs> So something about these experiences transforms you. You need that little thing. Okay? Now, it can be argued, uh, and I'm a healthy skeptic. I grew up in Mumbai. I came here for graduate school. 
as an engineer, a scientist, was more here. And I always, you know, I actually grew up fairly agnostic, mildly agnostic. And I, even though I grew up in the stories, and anyone been to India in this group? <coughs> so it's cool to call upon them as archetypes. But when you go to India, when the Indians say they are archetypes, no. The Indians would chant, and they would say they are real, right? And I had the hardest of time reconciling that fact. Are they real or are they mythology? Is it fun? Is it archetypes? In other words, are we all chanting this at the Denver Chant Fest? Is it all made up? You know, what's the what's the truth here? You know? And uh, I'll narrate you an experience. Some of you may have heard it. It's uh, imagine a scenario 5,000 years ago. Shiva and his wife Shakti were having a conversation about everyone's lives in the universe. And the conversation was recorded by Ganesha. He's also the god of writers, that's why he broke his task. And, you know, in other words, Shakti would ask Shiva, for instance, when did uh, John see Manoj at Denver Tempest? And Shiva would say on Sunday, he came to Manoj's talk. And John's Ishta Devata is Murugan. And this was recorded by Ganesha. And uh, it was about actually everyone's lives in the universe. So it's like the Akashic records. It's in the Akasha, the ether. And this was revealed to seven enlightened sages. So remember, you know, it's like a portrait, a painting. You go close by, you see only a little bit. You go further away, you see, get a bigger picture. So in physics, it's called the observer effect. The very act of observing depends on the observer, your vantage point. So this was known about everyone's lives. And these seven sages transferred these scrolls, it was palm leaves, and this was passed down generation to generation from like 5,000 years ago. And remember, this came from Shiva, Shakti, Ganesha. And now it's in the hands of a few families in a, this little town in South India called Vaitheswaran Koyal in Tamil Nadu. Near Chidambara. There's a only Natraj temple in the world it's in Chidambara. You've probably been there. Yeah? Harish. Now, I had heard about these scrolls and I was on a big pilgrimage trip to India. But I didn't plan to go this, to this town. But I was on a big uh, pilgrimage trip. I was visiting like 40 temples in 30 days. And when you do that, you know, you rent a car in India. And when you rent a car, it comes with a driver. Because you don't want to drive. There are no names. You share the road with cows, bullock cars, people. It's chaos. So uh, the driver's driving me, and I'm taking naps. I'm on the jet lag. And suddenly I wake up, and a fork in the road shows up to the side, white teeth and coil. And I remember I told the driver, go for it. And we end up late night into this town. And I scoped out the place where the Nadi scrolls were. And we end up you know, going to a hotel that night. And there's only one hotel. It's more like a small village. And next day morning, bright and early, I go to this Nadi scroll center. And they take my right thumbprint. For women, it's a left thumbprint. And based on a thumbprint, there are 108 different possibilities, karma can take you to your life. 
and now he has to narrow it down. So he tells me, okay, I'm going to get the scrolls that matches your thumbprint. And you wait here, and he goes in the back, there's like a warehouse. And it takes a long time, because everything takes a long time in India. <laughs> and he comes back with a sheet of scrolls, palm leaves. And he solemnly unwraps it, and he instructs me, all you have to do is answer any question posed in the scroll with a yes or a no. In other words, don't volunteer any information. I said, okay. And you know, he opens the scroll, chants the mantra, Om, Prayam Bakam, Nijamahe, etc. And he said, is your name Prakash? He said, no. So he tossed the scroll. <laughs> Next scroll, you were born 10 June 1950. He said, no. Next scroll, you have two sisters? No. <laughs> Next scroll, are you like a physician? Are you a doctor? I said, no, I'm a PhD, a poor and hungry doctor. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> and the question is, kept going on and on, and the bundle would get over, and he would go to the back, take a long time, come back again, and the question would resume. And it kept going on and on, and then it's really hot, it's South India, it's in the middle of summer, there's only a fan running, <laughs> and I'm getting very uncomfortable. And, I I'm thinking maybe you ask somebody enough questions that 2020 you can figure out. <laughs> like the movie Inglorious Bastards, that you know the bar scene, they put the car and they ask questions and figure out who that person is. You ask somebody enough questions, you can figure out. But these were like very random questions and I was beginning to give up. And all of a sudden a score popped up. It said your name is Manoj Chalam. That was correct. But I thought they got it from the hotel. <laughs> Indians are very smart. But then the next question said, okay, your birth date is 12th May 1962. That started to give me chills. Because nobody had that information. And then it said, my mother's name is Raja Lakshmi. Correct. Most Indian names are named after deities. It said, my father's name is Venkatachalam. Correct. It said, my wife's name means someone that represents light. And Jyoti means light in Sanskrit. It said my daughter's age. She was 10 years old, so now she's 18. She's a freshman at Amherst College, so we didn't tell her name. And it said uh, I live overseas and I import art of a spiritual nature. <laughs> and that shocked me, you know. It also told me it is time sensitive, it knew when I'm coming. Because few years earlier, I was in high tech. I was a CEO of a software company and I got fired. That's the best thing that happened to me. Then I cracked me on the head. <laughs> I needed that. Was, was too much here. It knew when I was coming because even I told him my itinerary for the next two days. So everything was like revealed. My mind was revealed. He told my past life. He told how I, you know, I recently started to teach, which I did about eight, nine years ago. And uh, he then projected forward every three years of my life and said what has already happened. Things like, you know, how our teaching will progress. It said Jyoti and I will teach together now. It said uh, we will build a temple. That's true, in San Diego, where we have a big warehouse of all these murtis, we moved it and we actually built a temple inside last year. And Jyoti reminded, hey, isn't that what the school said? <laughs> and uh, it talked about like not driving late night, there's actually an accident forecasted. It talks about health issues. And it kept going forward and forward. And finally, the guy said, okay, it's telling me your, the time of your death. You want to know that? 
I want to know everything. I was like rocking and rolling, yeah. <laughs> so it actually gave me the time I'm going to pass away. It's on a Friday, the fourth week of April, and it's comfortably far away. <laughs> I was like flabbergasted. You know, you hear in the yogic literature that you are not your body. At that time, I heard that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a moment, you know, it's like a deep awakening, something triggered. It also told me that these deities are not just mere archetypes and cute mythology, okay, they are real. Our minds are constrained by three dimensions. There are many dimensions, they actually are as real as you and I, okay. And it gave me a firm, a firm foundation, okay, uh, that, hey, one has to do your sadhana. I had my last beer earlier night, stopped eating meat. I said, time to dedicate myself to the real teachings. Okay. So there are real deep truths here. Now a question can be asked, uh, what about other nationalities? French people have gotten their schools in French, Americans have gotten their schools. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. Another question can be asked, since there are six and a half billion people on the planet, are there six and a half billion schools? That warehouse seemed pretty small in the back. <laughs> Those people who are destined to go there. So the fact that you're listening to me might mean you might go and get your scroll one day. Okay, it's a feedback loop. It knows when you're coming. Okay, now Shiva when he dances as Natal, I'm going back to the deities. He's called Ananda Tandava, the dance of joy. Ananda, and Tandava means dance. And there are 108 poses in the dance. And the final pose is this one. And this is a very rare one. Very few people have seen this one. Wow, yeah. Wow. The last pose is Shiva upside down, 108 pose. There's a reason for 108, it comes over and over again. There's a whole, and that comes from Saraswati, I'm going to talk about her. But this last pose is called Moksha Pandala. It's the dance of ultimate freedom, Moksha. In other words, the philosophy teaches us no need to die and go to heaven. Heaven is within us. We can achieve the state of ultimate freedom, moksha, liberation. And that true moksha comes as represented of the flame Shiva holds in his hand. That's the fire of illuminated wisdom, jnana. It burns a thousand lifetimes of avidya, ignorance. See, the Latin word video to see comes from the Sanskrit vidya, knowledge of who you are. Avidya means we're ignorant of our true nature. So it's like a thousand years of darkness is dispelled by a single source of illuminated wisdom because the darkness was never there. It's been an absence of light. Light and darkness can never coexist. So when you're truly enlightened, the hand going back represents ultimate freedom. The drum, it's a two-sided drum. One side represents pure consciousness which is a rocking world of Shakti within us. It is not the Shunyata, 
the Buddhist tradition. It is a rocking, rocking, ecstatic, kirtan enjoying world of Shakti within us. On the other side of the world, drum is this world of multiplicity. So from the non-dualistic one comes the multiple world. And the great sages know that we create our own reality. Okay, the world comes from within us. Mm -hmm. So at that point, in our, an amazing alchemy of transformation happens, where the legs go up and the hands go down. But as opposed to doing a handstand in yoga, where the hands and leg muscles are like contorted with stress, look at the hands here, it's bent. Look at the legs, it's gracefully up. Because upon enlightenment, the sense of doership vanishes, that we are doing stuff. It's all grace. There is no up, no down, no north, no south. It's all Shiva. So in the world without any center is the same as a world with infinite centers. That's the Shiva nature. Okay. It's all good. Okay. Now, even the figure at the bottom, if you notice carefully, a pasma has flipped. Now what this represents now are the old karmas which have to play themselves out. It's called prarabdha karma. It's like the fan being switched off. Even though you lose, you eliminate your sense of doership, and you are not creating new karmas. The old ones, the prarabdha karma, have to fulfill or to fortify. So it's like you know uh, the greatest sage of the last century, Ramana Marshi. After enlightenment, he had throat cancer. So this figure, Rapasmara, has flipped. What it represents is one still has to do sadhana, yoga, meditation, chanting, to maintain that. This will never be zero, okay? But it's like the Zen saying, before enlightenment, one chops wood carries water. After enlightenment, one chops wood carries water. The great sages know, from all traditions, okay, it doesn't matter which tradition you are in, Hindu, Buddhist, many Christian mystics, this is the state of enlightenment. It's a culmination of all spiritual paths. It's right here. It's a very beautiful Murti called Moksha Tandava. Any questions so far? Yes? Can you talk about the Naga attendance in our Okay. So the question is, uh, can you talk about the Naga, which is the snakes? Here, in this case, when Shiva dances as Nataraja, or the dancing Shiva, there are a lot of snakes dancing. There's a big mythology how it came about. In this case, the snakes represent desire. Because desire is like a snake's venom. Once it grabs you, it doesn't let you. Even the Bible talks about that, right? But Shiva is the ultimate yogi. He has desires. It's impossible for you to be desireless by human. It's part of the human experience. So he's wearing the snakes as a jewelry, as an adornment. And saying, you do not control me, I am of desires. That's the ultimate yogi. So even they flying around the dance. What happens here? He takes the same snake and ties it on his leg. In this case, the way the snake has shed his skin and represents transformation, here it represents the highest transformation. He has taken the same desires and channelized it to the highest desire the Kundalini awakening within us, the serpent energy, the three and a half coil, 
the base of the spine which everyone has. And upon awakening, it's like a rush, it goes up like a cobra. So he has taken the same desires and transmuted it to the highest desire for spiritual awakening. That's the Kundalini awakening. Any other questions? Yes. Grief, but imagine you are in a tunnel of grief 
when you embrace it partially, guess where you are? You are well in the tunnel. When you embrace it wholeheartedly, you are outside the tunnel. So that's the goddess Mahalakshmi. She's also a very tantric goddess of expansion. When you take a 50,000 foot view of the whole spiritual path, there are only two ways. Because you cannot stay at the level of your body and mind. Eventually we will die and you get reborn. And you see pleasure comes with pain, pleasure pain, you die, you get reborn. It's like doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Classic <coughs> insanity, right? According to Einstein. Einstein also said you can never solve a problem at the same level of consciousness as the problem. In other words, we cannot remain where we are at the level of our body and mind. So one way is go within. That's the yoga of meditation, Patanjali Yoga. Yoga Chitta Vritta Niroda. I believe that's what this is. Yeah? This is Lord Vishnu in meditation. Yoga is cessation of fluctuations of the mind. And that's the path of meditation and it's easy in the beginning. But it's harder as you go because you ask who is the one doing the meditation? It's your ego. And how can an ego go past itself to realize the self? So at some point you hit a conundrum. The other way is in one stroke you expand. It's a very unique perspective. And the way of expansion is Mahalakshmi. It's like never ending. It's like the universe always expands. Or entropy in physics always increases. There's no limit to a grace. And that's a path of expansion. Okay? Ultimately, you become so expansive, even death happens within you. It doesn't happen to you. That's immortality, the Tantra. Okay. So very beautiful goddess, the Tantric lineage. Yes? Uh, she also, the arms also represent the four aims of his life. Right? That's right. Artha, Kama, Dharma, Moksha, Moksha. Uh, the four arms. And, you know, and it depends uh, on your goal. Okay? Uh, that's why Hinduism encompasses everything, including the path of no path. Even atheism is accepted. And Hinduism, by the way, is not a religion. When the British came to India, they saw the Indians engaged in various spiritual practices. Hinduism is always about spiritual practices to realize the self. And so they saw the Indians like doing asanas, they saw Indians doing ecstatic chanting, they saw meditation, they saw some tantrika smoking dope in a cave. <laughs> the Western mind British, you know, which is used to a monotheistic religion, said, hey, what's going on? Not quite cricket, you know. <laughs> so they came up with the name Hinduism. At that time, the people of the Indus River Valley were called Hindus by the Persian traders. So the British coined the name Hinduism. There's never been a religion. And it's never been polytheistic either. Huh. At first sight, it appears polytheistic. But you go deeper, then there's only one spirit which pervades everything. But then you go even deeper, it becomes non-dualistic. Because you can never talk about it. Because the moment you talk about it, it's never that. It's the eternal subject. So the whole trick is how do you reveal and realize that you are that without making an object. That's where the philosophy comes in. That's where these deities come in. All the symbols, the stories, say the same philosophy. But it's in a, like, more colorful, more vivid, more picturesque. It's like the Bollywood expression of the philosophy. <laughs> 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 it's very colorful. 
So, you know, we teach in uh, churches. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Jyoti and I, we taught at the Bay State uh, Chaplain, <coughs> Chaplain's Group in a hospital in Massachusetts. Uh, and when you present the right Hindu teachings, which is scripturally based, and these, it seems to be well understood, but there's a lot of misconceptions. That's why we're here to clear all these misconceptions. So we call ourselves the Kali Yuga Express. <laughs> okay. Lakshmi's counterpart is Saraswati. <clears throat> and she's the goddess of intuitive wisdom, creativity, music. So her name is Saraswati. She literally was a river in ancient India 5,000 years ago where the Vedas, you know, existed. It was a Vedic civilization. And so she, she connotates the flow. It's the flow of creativity. So anything that flows from within you, the intuition, everything comes from her. And when you look at her iconography, she has like a mala in one hand. And the mala represents the awakened state. Because a bead mala is circular, without beginning or end, no birth or death. That's the unchanged state. And she says the way to awakening is twofold. One is through the scripture she holds in her hand, one hand, right there. That's either the Vegas or the Agamas, or the Tantrikas would say. But the other two hands show a Veena or a Sitar. And that's really what she's telling us. It's the path of Bhakti, music. Something about music, starting chanting, opens a heart. And that's what she recommends actually in Kali Yuga. This age of darkness, the only way out, we shift the Yuga within us, is by chanting the name of the Lord. That's what she represents. Mm. She's also represent, represents the deep order in the universe. Nothing is happenstance. There would be total chaos if it were not for her. Like the number 108, you know, in the Bhi Malas, 108, that denotes deep order in the universe. This was known in the Vedas, and the Vedas come from her. She's a Shakti behind Brahma. The Vedas talked about 108 many thousand years ago. But last century, the astronomers found that the distance of Earth to the Sun is 108 times the Sun's diameter. Wow. This is the Earth to the Moon. It's 108 times the moon's diameter. Say that again? <laughs> okay, this is the earth to the sun. It's 108 times the sun's diameter. You said the mm -hmm. distance. Distance. 108 times the sun's diameter. It's actually 108.14, you know. We're splitting hairs here. <laughs> this is the earth to the moon is 108 times the moon's diameter. And then the diameter of the sun is 108 times the earth's diameter. Hmm. Here's a more shocking thing. Yeah. The yogic scriptures talk about your prana, the breath, and the average inhalation and exhalation for anyone is four seconds. And you know, I've measured it myself in my long plane rides. I geek out over 10 minutes. I measure and it comes to four seconds. Inhalation and exhalation long term. So over a minute, it's times 15, right? 15 times Shakti moves through us as breath. Over an hour, it's times 60. Over a day, it's times 24. And the number comes out to 2 1600, which is 108 times 200. 
So you can actually come up with an equation if you geek out enough, which I did, <laughs> which relates your prana, your breath, to the moon, the sun, so hatha. And it's no accident we are in the solar system where there's life. We are literally breathing in and out the solar system. All that deep order comes from Saraswati. So nothing is happenstance. Even the chaotic raindrops on the roof, that's deep order. That's a chaos theory. All the order comes from Ma Saraswati. Many musicians, that's the archetype. She's the goddess of creativity, music, kirtan. So there's a popular saying in India, within every person resides two goddesses in everyone's heart, Lakshmi and Saraswati. You never pray to Lakshmi directly for abundance. You pray to Saraswati for wisdom. And that makes Lakshmi jealous and she runs after you. <laughs> <laughs> so the Indians have always placed a premium on knowledge. You know, you see it with all the scriptures, all the, you know, there's a high emphasis on Saraswati. Once you have knowledge, it will never leave you. That's Saraswati. Now, let me see the time. Do a quick one on Durga. And Durga and Hanuman are interesting. They're both uh, very unique. They're, they, you know, Karoli Baba, his sister there was Hanuman. He also prayed to Durga. There are a lot of similarities if you contemplate. <coughs> so you, Durga, you see this beautiful goddess and a fierce lion with all his weapons. So what's it all about? It's always a story and a philosophy. The story is there was this demon called Mahishasura. Mahish means buffalo and Asura means like Sura is light, Asura is away from the light. So he had demonic tendencies. But even the demons do yoga. You know, 100% demonic or 100%, you know. There's a, there's a murti within us. There's this divine entities within us. And, uh, you know, we oscillate between the divine and the diabolical. The divine and the animalistic. That's what explains the Hitler or the Nadim who done horrific things. And the human experience is more like a bridge between these two states. And the great philosopher Nietzsche said, no man can live on a bridge. You live on one side or the other. <coughs> and yoga and chanting and meditation is a way to realize the divine, the murti within us. Okay. So this demon was on the same quest. And he was the path of yoga. He did a lot of tapas, austerities. And he would stand on like one leg and do this tree pose. And he would do it for 10 years. Even now you see these Babas in India, the sadhus, you know, the dreads. They would do these amazing austerities. They are all out of the woodwork now in Kumbamela. Yeah? Mm -hmm. They're doing all their amazing tapas. They're showing off. <laughs> so this demon was doing tapas and he was meditating on Shiva. Om Namah Shiva, Om Namah Shiva. The reason people love to work with Shiva is he gets pleased. When the energy in the room builds up when you chant Om Namah Shiva, it's very powerful. So Shiva comes up to the demon and asks, what do you want? The demon said, I want to be immortal. Shiva said, nobody gets through immortality, I'll give you the next best thing. No existing god or goddess can kill you. And it's like a boon, it's like your intention coming true. You heard of Dr. Emoto's water experiments, right, in Japan, where he found the quality of your mind can impact the crystals, water crystals. In other words, if your mind is uh, disorderly, not just sick, 
the water crystals will be disordered. It's called a isotropic state. That was my PhD thesis. If your mind is orderly, the water crystal will be nice and orderly, like a pneumatic or a semantic state. So your intention can influence your surroundings, means scientifically true. So Shiva is the highest being. Anything he thought about came true, and this demon gets that boon, no existing goddess of, of God to kill him, and he gets very arrogant. He gets all these siddhis, these powers. And Patanjali actually warns against that. You can get these siddhis in the path of yoga, and he said, don't be distracted by it. And I've seen it firsthand. I've seen a yogi meditating in the Himalayas, in the snow, he's naked, and he's sweating. Because we have these powers within us. And this demon gets distracted and he starts to torture a lot of people. And people call on the gods and goddesses to fight him and nobody could vanquish him. So finally, they go to Lord Shiva. Say, hey, what have we done? You created a Frankenstein. Save us. Shiva was like meditating on Mount Kailash. He said, don't bother me. I'm too busy meditating. Go bother my wife, Shakti. So this is the goddess worship tradition. You know? So people go to Shakti, and she said, oh, okay, I'll help you. And she literally stood in one spot, there's a holy spot in India. And she asked all the gods and goddesses to come within her. And each god and goddess gave their Shakti to her, their powers. So for instance, Shiva gave us Trishuna. Hanuman gave the mace. Lord Ram gave the bow. Kali gave the axe. The Vishnu gave the discus, the wheel of samsara. There was a play in Los Angeles called As We Live in Vishnu's Dream. Vishnu gave the conch shell too. And the lotus was given by Lakshmi. And the beautiful face was given by Sundari, Parvati, or Shakti, Shiva's wife. And this incredibly beautiful woman with all these fierce weapons, representing all the gods and goddesses. She comes on this fierce time bobbing up and down <laughs> towards the demon. You can almost hear like Krishna Das chanting, Jai Mahapurga. <laughs> and the demon takes one look at her and he falls in love. He actually falls in love. He says, come, marry me. We will torture the world together. <laughs> she won't have it and she compassionately slays him. That's why it's called Mahishasura Mardini. I have the Durga for you to look at later. Mardini is a, she's a slayer of the demon Mahishasura. That's the story. The philosophy is the demon represents the demons within us. What is called samskaras in yoga. The repetitive pattern of addictive tendencies many of us have. This is a very addicted, addiction driven society. You see it in all facets of life. You know, celebrities, they do some <coughs> stupid things. And those are called samskaras. They drive you. I mean, I know, for instance, the ex-wife of a major uh, attorney general of a major state in America, during the day, he's a rational decision maker. At night, he's a raging alcoholic. Because his samskaras get the better of him. You see, with drugs, foods, alcohol, and even the, you know, A talks about being powerless in front of these samskaras, the 12-step method. Now, you have to ask, how, why are they so powerful? Because these samskaras reside in your causal body. You have three bodies, physical, subtle, the mind, and causal, which you go to when you are in deep sleep. And the causal controls the subtle. So these samskaras are buried right there. And your ego is the subtlest aspect of the mind. 
So the cause of control of the samsara, the ego is like a flashlight. And it tries to look for the samskaras which are the battery. No, it can't. It's controlled by them. Mm. Now Durga, as your archetype, guess where she resides? She resides in your causal body. That's what Carl Jung said, the collective unconscious. She belongs within all of us. That's how she's able to slay the demons. So she's a powerful, fierce goddess, but full of good. She cleans us out. She removes the stuff that holds us back, including the demons that, it, that attack us. And so Durga is worshipped in a big way in India. She also represents like an amalgamation of all the gods and goddesses. Okay. So, let me see the time. We're going to conclude, and you know, I feel in many ways we're just getting started. <laughs> we speak for like two days, 16 hours of these Murtis. But this is a festival, so I hope we give you a taste. And we're going to conclude by a beautiful chant, Sambhajo.